0: All right. So one of the most uh, profound things that you can say about a human being is that a human being has been created in the image of God. There's nothing that gives such purpose and such vision to our lives than to realize that we've been created by God. I've heard this illustration from a number of people, most recently from an Oxford mathematics professor named John Lennox, comparing our creation to Henry Ford's design of the Model T. And basically, the illustration goes something like this. It says that a Model T gets its design and its purpose from its creator, Henry Ford. And so for a Model T to operate as it's meant to, it stays on the road, it drives a certain speed, And so a Model T, in order to fulfill its design, does not pretend that it's an airplane. Because if it does, it drives off a cliff and it ends its existence. And in a similar way, we as human beings are not self-made people. We don't believe that we're products of chance or... Um, just a blind evolutionary process that happened over billions of years. We believe that God created us, that he created us in his image. And this has profound implications for our lives. And simply put, what it means is that God knows best. He designed us. And so he knows the the purpose of our lives. And he knows the way that our lives work best. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, we've been reminded of this, but in this passage specifically, we are going to be exhorted to remember our creator, to remember that God is the creator, that we are his creation, and that he has called us to live in such a way that we honor that relationship. So there's three ways that we're going to see in the text to remember your creator. And the first one is by your diligence, You remember your creator by your diligence. We're starting with Ecclesiastes chapter 11, although we'll refer to some earlier chapters. Chapter 11, verses five and six says this, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So, this is sort of a response to everything that has happened in Ecclesiastes so far. So, the basic message of Ecclesiastes has been that life is like smoke, it's a vapor. It's meaningless. When you look at life accurately, you see that it is like a transparent pane of glass. You're meant to see through it, beyond it, to God himself. So you could wrongly conclude that you should just crawl up in a hole and despair that reality. But Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, says that we should have a different conclusion. And he gives us this beautiful illustration to think about. He gives us the illustration of a baby's creation in the womb of its mother. And he says, think about the creation of a baby in the womb. You don't know how the body unites with the spirit. So sometimes you meet spunky kids. Sometimes you meet kids that are more emotionally withdrawn. Sometimes you meet kids that rarely smile. And sometimes you meet kids who have big smiles on their face. And so we understand about a person that there is their body but we also understand that each person is inhabited by a different type of spirit, a human spirit, but each person has a different temperament. And so he's saying, think about the womb. You might understand something about biological development. In fact, we understand more about biological development than Solomon did, especially with the technology now um, of in vitro fertilization and different things like that, we understand a lot about what happens within the in the womb. So we understand that a uh, baby goes through different stages of development. For example, you have the zygote stage, you have the morula stage, we ha- you have the blastocyst stage. You understand that a blastocyst attaches to the wall of the uterus, and then that that baby goes into the embryonic stage where There's all sorts of different development that happens within that stage. And so we can explain what happens within the womb biologically, but we do not understand. We still do not have this question answered. How does the spirit become one with the body? How does that body become a unique God inhabited person who is stamped with the image of God. And he's saying, you don't understand that. So here's what he's saying. By implication, it's a lens for us to understand this entire book of Ecclesiastes. It looks like life is meaningless. It looks like By observing what happens under the sun, we can observe everything that there is. It looks like naturalism is the right worldview. It looks like humanism is the right worldview. What you see is what you get. But he's saying, you don't understand anything fully. You can understand it partly, but everything that you have understanding of as a human being is irreducibly complex. You can understand it by observing, but you can't understand even the most basic realities in their essence, like how the spirit of a person and their body unites in the womb of their mother. So G.K. Chesterton... British guy, philosopher, writer, he, he was talking about this reality, and he was observing that the world is irreducibly complex. And he makes this analogy that I find really helpful. He talks about how the world, really when you think about it, operates more like a fairy tale than you realize. So he, he makes this observation that people love fairy tales. And specifically, he makes the observation that people love the fairy tale about Cinderella. And so he kind of recounts the story of Cinderella. And he talks about specifically when the pumpkin turns into a coach. And he, he says, you know, basically that we love those stories. Because when you really think deeply about life, this is how life works. So when we say that the body of a human being is inhabited by a spirit or a soul, we're saying something that at bottom is like saying a pumpkin turned into a coach. Because we have so little understanding of how it is done. So here's what he's calling us to do as a result of this information. He's saying, think how little you know about biology. Think how little you know about the invisible spiritual world, about people's temperaments and about how that attaches to their body. Now think about your conclusion by observing the world that life is meaningless. And because of that, we should despair do you think it's possible that you don't have all of the information that you actually don't know that your conclusion is correct? He's saying, because it's true that we have so little information and that there is far more to see than what we see instead of taking on this posture of despair We should instead be diligent. Look what he says. We should conclude because our knowledge is so limited. He says, verse six, in the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper this or that or whether both alike will be good. So here's what he's saying. Instead of despairing, we should be diligent. We should sow our seed. And seed here is a metaphor for doing good, for loving others, for serving others, for doing a job well. Whether it's mowing your lawn, or working hard as an engineer, or working hard as a stay-at-home mom, or being diligent as a student or working hard as a college student, who's living with your parents to serve them around the house. We shouldn't sit around as a result of the book of Ecclesiastes and pout. Instead, we should say, man, I, I understand almost nothing about the way that the world works, but I understand that God has a purpose For it all. Even though the world appears to be meaningless, I will take by faith that it is not meaningless. And because God tells me to be diligent, instead of trying to figure out the unsolvable sum of math, which we can easily get into, right? Some of us are more prone to this than others to try to figure out everything about the way that the universe works. You're going to be sitting trying to figure out for a long time and you are never going to get satisfactory answers to your questions. Instead, the wise thing to do is to be diligent, to make the most of the time that we have on this earth And although life appears to be meaningless, it will be infused with meaning, not when we try to figure it all out, but when we take the action that God has called us to take in our lives. So we're diligent. Okay, so in our diligence, this question has kept coming up in the book of Ecclesiastes. How do we find joy? in the midst of working hard, being productive, doing what God has called us to do, fearing him and obeying his commandments. So the second thing we see, the way that we remember our creator is in our delight. Okay, chapter 11, verses seven through 10 say this, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain for your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Okay, so there's this acknowledgement in the text of these two realities that are part of every single person's life. There are days in our lives that are full of darkness and lament and sadness and mourning. But there are also days in our lives that are full of delight and joy. And there's this specific season of life that for many people is filled with joy and delight. And it's the season of youth. And what Solomon is saying is, when you're young, seize the day, enjoy it. He, He calls young people to rejoice in your youth. Let your heart cheer you, enjoy your life. You don't need to feel guilty for enjoying your life. But like all wise people, there is not just a license to go do whatever you want in order to enjoy your life. There is also a caution, He says, enjoy your life, do what your heart desires, enjoy what your eyes see. But as you're doing that, he's not saying instead of doing that. He's saying, as you're doing that, as you're pursuing joy, remember something. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So what's he saying? He's saying there is a type of enjoyment in life that turns out to not be enjoyable at all. There is a way to enjoy life, a way of drunkenness, a way of sexual immorality, a way of laziness and indifference a way that walks away from the commands of God and walks into its own pleasure that turns out to be a pathway that although it is filled with temporary pleasures, leads to death. And what he's saying is that's no way to rejoice. Not don't rejoice, but I want you to have the type of rejoicing life that lasts And the type of rejoicing that lasts is the type of rejoicing that survives the judgment of God. It's the type of rejoicing that in God's judgment is proper rejoicing. So let me just talk to the young single people in our church right now. I want to tell you that as a church and personally, I do not believe that singleness is like a purgatory where you are waiting for the heaven of marriage. In fact, if you talk to a lot of married couples, they feel like marriage is a purgatory and they wish that they were single again. It's it's such an interesting dynamic because I talk to the single people in our church and many of you wish you were married. I talk to the married people in our church and they won't say this outright, but sometimes If they're honest, they feel like they wish they were single again. And so here's what I'm saying. You're single. There is a crisis going on in our society. With COVID-19, with racial injustice, there is tons of work to do. Here's what Solomon would say to you. Seize the day your life matters. And singleness and youth are incredible gifts because you have more time and you have more energy and you have more passion than you will ever have in your life in the future. And so Solomon is not saying, hey, listen, let me tell you how life really is Let me tell you about all the suffering and all the pain that you're going to endure. That's not what he's saying exactly in this passage. What he's saying in this passage is rejoice. And so what does that look like? It is in New Testament terms to seek first the kingdom of God. There are so many different things in our society that are pulling you with your youth to rejoice in. And Solomon is this voice, and I want to be this voice who's saying, rejoice in the freedom that you have to give yourself to the kingdom of God. And so you're asking the question, what does this look like? And I think what may be disappointing to you is that What it looks like does not look incredibly flashy. It doesn't look um, shiny. It, It might not look great in an Instagram picture. But what I'm telling you is that this path is the path to true and lasting joy. That doesn't mean it won't cost you anything, but that does mean that it will bring you a life filled with joy. So let me give you an example from this past weekend in our church, just yesterday, in fact, okay? We had an opportunity as a church to recruit some volunteers. If you didn't hear about this, it's okay. It was kind of recruited in an underground way because there were only 12 spots. And so we partnered with this organization called Urban Houseworks. We had 12 young mainly single people, serve. And here was the opportunity. This organization, Urban House Works, fix ups, fi- fixes up homes in the Twin Cities area in order to help people who are in the low-income category get into nice, livable spaces. So these students and young professionals Spent some time this weekend painting these houses. And there was a, a young lady who worked for Urban Houseworks, I believe her name was Christina, and she said that since COVID and since the racial injustice involving George Floyd and kind of exploding from there has happened in our city, that it's been hard for this organization called Urban Houseworks to recruit volunteers. And she was so thankful to have these people in our church serving alongside of her because she had actually been painting houses alone. That is an example of how to rejoice properly in your youth. It's, it's an example of how to properly use your heart and your eyes and your energy. It's the way to live your life without regret. And so my call to those of you who have youth, who have zeal, who have energy, who have free time is to use that free time to give your life to the kingdom of God, to properly delight and seek first his kingdom. And the reason for this is because of this sobering reality. The time is short. So here's what he's saying. Remember your creator by your diligence, in your delight. And thirdly, as sort of this sobering reality before death dawns. This passage is both encouraging and very sobering. 12 verses one through five. Remember also your creator When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. So here's what Solomon's doing as an old man. He's looking at the youth in the face and he's saying, what an opportunity that you have. He's saying, I've lived enough life to see that the evil days will come upon all of us. See, it's not guaranteed that your youth will even last as long as it's supposed to last. Because there are accidents. There is disease. There are tragedies that for many people in their life cut youth short. And it's also possible for your youth to be extended for a long time and to actually have that same energy and youthful vigor into your 70s. But what he's warning us about in this passage is that we don't know when our youth will be cut off. And then he's saying, everyone will have this point in their life where instead of enjoying and delighting in being able to serve God freely with their life, there will be this time where we look at our life and we say, I have no pleasure in it. And and he gives a few reasons for this, some vivid pictures. I can't get through all of them, but he gives this image of strong men being bent. All of us have seen this before. Somebody that we knew, who was strong, who was an athlete, who served in a war, who was known for their athletic accomplishments, who was somebody that you just felt like their youth would never run out. And now because of injury, maybe they they were paralyzed or maybe because of old age, Now that person who used to stand upright with a big chest and big shoulders and big arms is now stooped over and they can barely walk. He's saying, don't look past that person. Look at that person because your days are short. You feel strong now. You feel youthful now, but you will not always be that way. He also illustrates his point in verse five. He says, they are afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. Another way that youth or this opportunity to give our lives for the kingdom of God is sort of cut off is when there's political unrest. There's terrors on high. There's tyrannical unrest. Political leaders who are making it impossible for us to operate the way that we'd like to. And this can happen in a flash. There can be a free society that all of a sudden gets put in the grip of a dictator, and all of a sudden what used to be possible is no longer possible. And there can be many terrors in the way. Think about the reality of COVID. Think if you would have told us about this a year ago. No one would have believed the way that this disease would limit our ability to serve one another and to be with one another. And so we have this stark reminder right in front of us that the time is short, that death is dawning. And this all is leading us to think about man going to his eternal home, mourners going about in the streets. He's wanting us to think about this opportunity that we've been given, this privilege that we call life that we have. And he's saying, don't waste your life. Don't waste your time because it can end so quickly. I remember getting a stark reminder of this when I was leading salt company in Ames, Iowa in my mid twenties, and there was a student, a young man with all of his youthful energy and zeal, who was part of that ministry. He went to an Iowa state football game. He's walking out of the Iowa state football game and out of nowhere, he gets hit by a car, knocked into the ditch goes unconscious and dies a short time later. He would have never imagined when he got up to his seat that his time was so short that he would not even make it to the seat of his car. And all of us are supposed to, no matter what our age is, supposed to think about our life this way. And and we're not supposed to sit down in despair because of this reality, but we're supposed to think about the way that we're spending our lives. And once again, double down on serving God and serving people because God and people are what lasts forever forever. And we spend so much of our time with trivialities and God would sober us up and say, give your life to what matters. Serve. Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. Don't try to figure out everything there is to know about it in a way that never leads you to take a step of action. Here's the way that the New Testament summarizes this teaching. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 2 and 5 verses 15 through 16. And what I love about this passage is it really deepens our motivation to give our lives to what matters. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying this creator that Solomon talked about in Ecclesiastes is not some distant deity, but because you've placed your faith in Jesus, this creator is your father. And this father has demonstrated his love for you by sending his son, Jesus, to die in your place for your sins, but also to leave you an example to follow. Think about Jesus. He did not waste one moment of his life and he did that because he loves us. And so because of this reality that our creator has sent his son to die in our place, to live as an example for us. Here's how we should live our lives. We should look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There's opportunities to serve within Salt City Church. There's the Sheridan food drive. We're gonna be continuing to do urban houseworks. There's going to be other opportunities coming down the pike. There's opportunities to serve people and love them and reach out to them within your connection group. Let's stir up one another to love and good works. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have ransomed us from this way of rejoicing in life that is selfish, that is self-focused, and that ends in death, would you help us to put aside those things that are destructive to our life, but also those things that seem neutral, neutral, that are trivial in our lives and re-energize us to love and to serve you moment by moment in our lives? Would you help us to just get up off the couch, get out of our own head? and follow you in these practical ways, Jesus. Amen.